Oh, and by the way, yesterday, how many of you have had a radio that had a loose wire? And at times it was real nice and clear, and at times it would go out and then be back in clear? Well, that's how I started as of yesterday. I'm having periods at which my hearing is perfectly normal and then it'll go back into little periods where it's still muffled and all. So we're getting real close to be, being back to normal. The doctor said three to four weeks uh, and it's only been two. So I'm thrilled uh, with the progress that we're gaining in terms of the hearing on the right ear. Uh, for those of you that didn't know what happened, uh, my ear and a Q-tip had a rough encounter, uh, unplanned. When I was cleaning my ear and my wife came into the bathroom. Uh, so, but we, we're on the recovery process. We've come to the end of our study of Ecclesiastes. And one thing that we should have noticed is the presence of some reoccurring themes. Probably the most dominant is that if our perspective was simply life under the sun, life apart from God, then our days do become monotonous. And we begin to ask the question, is life really worth living? And the first time through Ecclesiastes, through this cycle of talking about it, Solomon's answer was basically no. If you look at life from simply the perspective of there not being a God, Life isn't worth living. I have said often, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, that if somehow somebody were to prove to me tomorrow that there is no God, you're looking at one of the meanest people that would ever live. Because I would make sure that the fittest was surviving, which would be me and my family, if there was no God. I have a hard time trying to help a person who doesn't believe in God when they are struggling with why they should continue to live, when, especially when they are plagued with illness, chronic illness, terminal illness. I am so grateful for friends of mine like Ken Marsh and John Davenport and Jim Small who as ministers said, when they realized they were facing death, they said, all three of them at one point or another said to me, I have been teaching and preaching and telling people how to live life. Now it's my responsibility to tell them how to die as a Christian and show them that. Life is worth living. And it is anything but monotonous when we pause to recognize the situations that we think are uh, tough times, burdens, are actually challenges for us. Challenging challenges coming from God. Remember how James started? Consider those trials that you're facing. Consider those as joyful because God's sending them to help you grow. Secondly, in terms of a theme, that even though man's wisdom cannot explain everything, Solomon concluded that it was better to follow God's wisdom than to practice man's folly. 
That wealth, thirdly, could be enjoyed and employed to the glory of God. And, fourthly, regarding the certainty of death, there's no way to escape it. Everybody sitting here today is going to die. And the reality of death ought to motivate us to enjoy life now and make the most of the opportunities that God has given to us. Uh, I like the way that Chuck Swindoll poetically describes the journey that we've been taking Living the Ragged Edge, a little booklet that he did, in there as he's beginning to bring the book to a close, here's what he wrote. From the depths of despair, through the sloth of despondency, to the ragged edge of disillusionment, Solomon's quest has been quite an adventure. The depths of despair, the sloth of despair, of despondency. I, I wrote a doctoral project paper dissertation and I promise you if you read through it you're not going to find any nice beautiful poetic language like this. I, it just doesn't seem to be in me. I mean the depths of despair. The sloth of despondency. And in terms of the despair and despondency the major proposition that we've seen has been that life is meaningless apart from God. That is, in reference to life lived under the sun, the word vanity is used more than 30 times. James Freeman and Harold Chadwick have a little book called Manners and Customs of the Bible. And they go through the books of the Bible. And the one thing they say about Ecclesiastes is the major theme of Ecclesiastes is the pointlessness of human activity. Think about it. Think about most of what we do. Get up, go to work, so we can come home and go to bed, so we can get up and go to work, so we can come home and go to bed, so we can get up and go to work. I mean, really? They go on to state, however, that like Job, the author insists that God's laws must be kept, whether keeping them results in happiness or sorrow. And the expression is still heard occasionally as... Well, that's really vain. Uh, a song a couple decades ago, I know I show my age when I talk about songs, but you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Uh, or Jack Nicholson, the actor. He once said, I have a lot of vanity. And the emphasis is still on the meaningness of life without God. Now, as we move into our text today, notice once again how this final chapter begins. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. You know, when I look at that verse, remember your Creator. The first question that I see and think about and really that's answered by our text is the question when? Verses 1 to 8. I pointed out last Sunday how those first eight verses of the chapter consist of a poem. A series of metaphors that exhort us as the readers to remember the Creator before the days of age and the days of death set in. 
And what we have here is a warning against mindless self-indulgence, extravagance, wastefulness during the days in which we have our strength and, vi bitter, and vigor. To remember the Creator is to follow the path of wisdom and to extend the joy of life. To forget the Creator is to invite bitter regrets in an empty existence in an old age. I guarantee you that everybody here knows of someone who at one time had it all together. So they thought. And now as life has moved on, People have left them. Jobs have come to an end. Health has wavered. And because they don't have a firm, trusting, obedient relationship with God, they become disillusioned and bitter. And Solomon gives us this beautiful poem. It's a collection of metaphors describing the deterioration of our bodies as old age comes on. And, and I believe the richness of the language is not exhausted when we might recognize a particular referent, such as the eyes beginning to fail. Sounds like he's talking about maybe what we know of as cataracts. The hands beginning to tremble. The teeth, he refers to them as grinders. The grinder is unable to chew our food. You see, the scope of Ecclesiastes has taken us from the energetic vitality of youth through the disillusionment and cynicism of middle age and finally to the very edge of the grave. And we have encountered Solomon's deepest struggles and we felt the sting of his frustrations. And at times... Again, I can't speak for you, but at times I think we have all nodded in agreement with many of his cries of exasperation. But let's make sure we're not missing the point. Since our bodies will return to the earth, now is the time to remember Him. To remember our Creator in all of our thoughts and our deeds. Rather, than the joyful times that He intends. We need to be remembering our Creator through our golden years that can become dark days, in His words. I, I had a funeral the other day. It was Karen Blackenberg's mother-in-law. Brandenburg. Brandenburg. Karen Brandenburg's mother-in-law. Uh, it was uh, Nicole Black who has come here with her kids. It was Nicole's mother. Sixty-three years young. We don't know what tomorrow might bring. And we need to make sure that we are ready. We have to face the fact that we aren't getting any younger. You know, ignoring our age won't make it go away. Aging's inevitable. 
and actually can propel us toward greater dependence on and a deeper relationship with God if we'll allow it. God has designed us to be empty without Him. I've noted before Augustine's saying, his prayer, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, there is no peace in life until we remember, until we are in a proper relationship wherein we recognize our Creator as also the Lord of our lives. Which means that we also have to realize that now is the time to prepare for eternity. You know, preparing for retirement is commendable, but it's nothing when compared to the importance of investing in the eternal relationships we have with God. So let me ask you, if somebody were to observe you today, you don't know they're watching you. They're just sitting back taking notes. Would they conclude that you are remembering your Creator by obeying Him? What evidence could they point to in order to support their observation? And that really brings us to the second question. And that's the question of how. How do we show that we do in fact have this sort of a relationship with God? That of remembering our Creator. And I think that's where verses 9 to 12 take us. One of the great documents of the church, known as the Westminster Catechism, in that it tells us that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now this is a conclusion that we're given as Solomon, our author, brings his journey into understanding to an end. But how are we to do this? Listen to his words in verses 9 to 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. These words of Solomon, they remind me of something that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, on its own, the book of Ecclesiastes may present itself as somewhat depressing. I mean, really. The repetition over and over again, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. But the preacher's conclusion, Koheleth's conclusion, Solomon's conclusion, calls for a change of thinking 
by focusing upon the one source of truth that is valid for anyone sincerely searching for the meaning of life. And while verse 12, especially if you have the NIV version, appears to warn the reader against the study of any teachings beyond the true canonical canonical wisdom, probably a better translation suggests that the contrast is really between the failure to appreciate wisdom on one hand and the excessive zeal for study on the other. You see, it's not moderation, but the excess the excess that becomes controlling that we're warned against. But we need to be people of the book. I don't know how many times that I've had people ask me questions. Questions that were plainly answered in the Bible. And I would say, well, have you read Acts in the Bible? Well, uh, I've, I've read bits and pieces. The reason back in January that I gave you the all-church reading plan is that there is no greater blessing than to be able to read and know God's Word. You cannot know what God wants you to do in life if you are not reading and studying the Bible. You can't do it. And as you saw and heard from Diane today, what a blessing to be able to say, I didn't take weekends off. I read on and I'm finished with the Bible already. And here it is, still August. Man, September, October, November, December... Who knows what else you'll be able to get through again, Diane. That's why I had Jesse read what she did this morning as our call to worship. Romans chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. We're to be living sacrifices. It's an oxymoron. A sacrifice is something that gets killed. We're to be living sacrifices. In other words, we're to be walking dead men. You can't scare me with death. You can't. You know why? I already died. I died to this world. I'm living for Christ and the only thing that's going to happen when this life is taken from me is I'm going to transition into the arms of my heavenly loving Father and Savior. I am not afraid to die. We're to be living sacrifices. But the part that really speaks to me is when we're called to change from ugly caterpillars into beautiful butterflies. That's the word he uses. But be transformed. Metamorphosis. That's the Greek word Paul uses. Be transformed how? How are you as a Christian to be transformed? Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. Reading God's Word. Studying God's Word. Being open to the Scriptures. And you know what Paul says? If you renew your mind by studying the Word of God, 
Paul says, you can know the perfect will of God. I hear people say, well, how do we know the will of God? I say, well, read the Bible. Have you read the Bible? Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, you want to know the will of God? Renew your mind. That's how it happens. And that leads to the third question this morning, which is also another of the W's. Remember those who, what, why, when, and where? Uh, I always write those down whenever I'm called on to write a paper or anything. Just, just as a very beginning of where, where do I maybe want to go with this? And, and that's what I did in preparing the sermon. I didn't use all of them. But why? Why do we need to remember the Creator? You know, after what has seemed like an endless cycle of futility and frustration, with an occasional insight, a burst of insight and wisdom, Solomon sums up his conclusions in a simple and pointed exhortation. The end of the matter. That's why I titled the sermon this this morning. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole of man. I know, I didn't read the word duty. It's not in the original text. Uh, rather than the whole duty of man or even simply what concerns every man. Basically what Solomon is saying is obedience to God, keeping the commandments, is what mankind is all about. In fact, he actually uses a word throughout Proverbs that he doesn't use now. He in, the, in earlier chapters has been talking about man, but now he talks about humanity corporately to the characteristics that we have as individuals, as men and women, but as humanity. And throughout the book, he's investigated the situation and now surprisingly, he affirms that the whole of humanity consists not in our immortality, our mortality. It doesn't consist in even our ignorance, though those are pretty common. But it consists in our dependence on God. And yet the conclusion's not surprising. It flows naturally from all that's gone before. Humanity sought to become like God. That's what happened in the garden, Genesis 2 and 3. Satan's temptation? Oh, it's not because the fruit's not good. It's because God doesn't want you to eat that because if you do, you'll be intelligent like Him, knowing right from wrong. The temptation was to become like God. And the result was that instead of becoming like God, humanity lost the one thing that made them truly human. That relationship really, on a daily basis, communion, fellowship with God. Everything Ecclesiastes has affirmed up to this point, the sovereign freedom of God, the limits of human wisdom, thoughts on the use and abuse of wealth and power, the brevity and absolute contingency of our lives, all of those lead to the command to fear God. You know, for many, the meaninglessness of life 
to which the teacher has so mercilessly exposed, it does lead to despair. It does lead to nihilism. But for Solomon, the author of our text, it's a stimulus. It's a motivation to true piety. The insignificance of all that is done under the sun leaves him awestruck. It leaves him silent before God. And his inability to control or predict the future provokes him to dependence on God. I can't help but think of my little buddy, Paul, over in Myanmar, Burma. He had gone to preach at one of the little remote villages and when he got there he was met by a military person who waved a gun in his face and said, you're not going to preach about God. You need to leave. You need to go back home. And Paul said, I did. But when I got home, I realized those people need to hear the message of God. So he said, I headed back. Not knowing whether I would face that gun or not. Not really caring if I would face that gun or not. But I headed back. And he said, as I went, I started singing. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. And that's where it's at, folks. That's where it's at. One writer has pointed out that Solomon has anticipated perhaps the deepest mystery of the Gospel. That the just shall live by faith. So, by way of conclusion, where does this leave us? Where are we headed? Look once more at verse 14 with me. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You and I, the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. One of these days we're going to be standing before God. And we are going to be held accountable for what we've done, for what we've said. And you know what? We can choose to believe or deny what He says. But the reality is is that one day we're going to have to face Him and get an account of our lives. Now you know what? That verse doesn't bother me because I know that I'm ready to stand before my God and my Savior. But it bothers me in this. I know that I have family members that are not living in relationship with God. Oh, they'll tell you they believe. They'll tell you they believe there's a God. They'll tell you they believe Jesus is the Son of God. But they never darken the doors of a church to worship. Why do do they think they want to spend heaven 
eternity in heaven with the church if they don't ever want to be a part of the church on earth. There is no Christianity apart from the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is Jesus. The church. We are the incarnation of Jesus now that He has returned. So I want to quote, I want to close with one more quote. And this is going to finish our look at Ecclesiastes. It happens to be another quote from one of my favorite devotional writers, Chuck Swindoll. When we come to the end of our own resources and have consumed what the world offers, we'll be left empty-handed and alone unless we have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. After all, it was Jesus who came down from glory and majesty above the heavens to enter our drab world below the sun so that we could not only experience eternal life, but enjoy abundant life in the present. Which is what John 10.10 10 says. Let's pray. Father God, we have read through and studied and examined the book of Ecclesiastes. Help us now to apply the wisdom that is given to our daily lives. And help us to seek out that wisdom, the wisdom of what He called the one shepherd that we know is You, Father. The wisdom that has been given to us through Your Word, the Scriptures. Help us to study Your Word. To be renewed in our minds so that we can know Your will. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.